welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined by my two colleagues, Kathleen Hallisey and Danielle Vincent. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Danny. Hi, Alan. Hello, how are you both? We're very well. Thank you very much. So the subject for today's podcast is sexual abuse, nervous shock and secondary victims. So before we get underway with this podcast, I need to give a health warning. Obviously, we're going to be discussing very sensitive matters, which can be understandably very upsetting. And so if you think you may be disturbed or upset by this podcast, now's the time to turn away and go and do something else. Otherwise, please do stay with us. So the subject for this podcast, as I said, is sexual abuse, nervous shock and secondary victims. So what this is all about is a person who is not the immediate victim of something that has gone wrong, something terrible, but they have witnessed in some way an injury being sustained by a loved one. So a classic example would be a loved one seeing a relative being injured in a road traffic accident. Um, They see what has happened to their relative, either at the scene or immediately afterwards, perhaps in an ambulance or at A&E. And the general law is that that person, that relative who has witnessed the aftermath, so to speak, if they have sustained a psychiatric injury, which used to be known as, in these cases, as nervous shock, would be able to claim compensation. Now, this is not an easy area of law, and you will gather why it is not when we go on to explain that there is going to be a hearing in the Supreme Court very shortly. So the Supreme Court is the top court in the land. For those of you who are not familiar with the English legal system, where they're going to be considering this question, can an individual make a claim for psychiatric injury caused by witnessing the death or other horrifying event of a close relative as a result of earlier clinical negligence? So the Supreme Court is going to be looking at some medical negligence cases where this issue has arisen. But we've decided to talk about this in this podcast because not only is it an interesting and difficult area of law, but it may have some bearing in respect of the sexual abuse cases that we have to deal with. And that's been prompted by a case in Victoria, Australia, where a father of a young lad who was sexually abused and went on to take their own life as a consequence, apparently, has been able to claim compensation for the psychiatric injury that he suffered. So that is a bit of a long introduction, but a necessary one, so that you understand where we're coming from to make sense of what we're going to be trying to discuss in this podcast. So having given this 
introduction, I'm going to throw the ball over to Kathleen, who has got, if I can put it like this, US insight into some of these issues. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying before we started recording, this is certainly something that we can claim for in the US where you know, a loved one has passed away as the result of someone else's negligence, and you are psychologically impacted by that. So I would hope that the law would be expanded in this country because I see no reason why someone shouldn't be able to claim for that, particularly, you know, in the cases that are now before the Supreme Court where there has been a clinical negligence and parents or children have witnessed a really horrific death. But in the context of sexual abuse, certainly we see time and again, how sexual abuse impacts the entire family. And I think it would only be fair that the defendant should have to compensate the parents of a child who's been sexually abused for the impact it has on them. Yes, and I, I, I agree. And I think the case from Australia sort of succinctly sets out the, the logic behind that. These cases in the Court of Appeal, there really isn't any dispute, as I understand it, as regards to facts. There's been negligence, but the problem is there's then a delay between the negligence and the traumatic event. And the judges have been saying, because there's this delay between the negligence and the traumatic event, which is then witnessed, the person who has suffered the psychiatric injury as a result of witnessing the traumatic event cannot claim. Whereas the law seems to be saying, had that traumatic event immediately followed the negligence, then they could. So there's, on the face of it, an illogical explanation for why, in some cases, the family member can claim and when they can't claim. And I'm going to get Danny to talk a little bit about this, about what we see, which is family members are often affected very seriously by what happens to a loved one, whether it's sexual abuse or homicide, domestic violence. And, you know, it is difficult to justify why they should not be compensated. Thanks, Alan. I think when I've been thinking about this, One of the thoughts I've had is that when we're dealing with our our clients and, you know, we have to speak to family members or partners or whatever situation, children, a lot of the difficulty and the struggles that come with being the relative, for example, of the individual that has been abused is that they didn't notice, for example, the changes in our client or, or the abuse survivor it seems to be almost an element of guilt, which is wrongly placed, that they didn't notice. So the difference in that situation is if somebody knew exactly at the time, there wouldn't be this extra feelings that that an individual has. And we're talking about cases that we've done, whether that be football coach abusers, where the clients have come forward, you know, 20 years out of time, and their parents have felt incredibly upset that they didn't notice changes in their children perhaps or they felt that they didn't protect their children so a lot of the cases we deal with the impact to the to the 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 secondary victims as you rightly say could be years years and years down the line yes and you know parents understandably it may be entirely misplaced guilt feel absolutely guilty for what has happened to their child you know it it can be along the lines of it's my, it's my fault because I left them in the care of 
ex, you know, whether it's a football coach or the music teacher or, or whatever it was. And of course, they were, you know, unawares. And then to discover 10, 15, 20, 30 years later what's happened, I think we can all see how upsetting and distressing that can be. And of course, when it all does come to light, it can often affect the relationship between the parent and the child. You know, the dynamic changes, what's been sort of may have been suppressed and managed in some way, is no longer suppressed and managed. You know, the consequences can be very profound for the parent when the uh, sexual abuse comes to light. And also the other element we need to consider is therapy. So when our clients are seen, often they are recommended certain specific types of therapy, which are very much needed after something has happened to them. But what about parents, relatives, partners, whomever the secondary victim may be, they may need substantial therapy or group therapy, family therapy. There may be lots of costs involved to a secondary victim following the incident. Yeah, and Kathleen, I'm sure you got insight into this. Parents can often find themselves unwittingly being groomed by the abuser. Yeah, that was actually something that I was going to raise is, you know, it's something I bang on about. And I think Danny and I spoke about in the podcast we recorded this morning of that. I really feel like there should be some type of public information campaign around what abusers actually look like and the grooming that happens and how the grooming doesn't just happen to the victim, it happens to the victim's families. You know, I remember particularly in the um, football cases involving Barry Bunnell, how he groomed the entire family. And so, you know, I think there's a huge amount of guilt that parents feel, obviously, if their child's abused because, you know, they feel responsible for protecting them. Obviously, that's your number one job as a parent to keep your child safe and protect them. But understanding that the grooming happens to everybody it isn't just to the victim yeah and uh, i think there's often a lack of awareness around that and uh, an immediate case that we're sort of dealing with at the moment so i've got to be careful about what i say but generally speaking it's a it's a case from a little while back where the abuser was a teacher and he groomed parents and the grooming was so effective that he became a very close friend of a particular set of parents who basically didn't bat an eyelid when it came to light that this teacher stroke friend had sexually abused the friend of their son. It didn't affect the relationship at all. And they just carried on and, you know, that relationship continued all the way and to the very end when this you know when this this teacher was finally called in by the the police and i think that's a very very striking example of how effective a child abuser can be when it comes to grooming the adults let alone the children yeah absolutely i mean i've certainly had that in plenty of cases where you know particularly in religious organizations an entire congregation supports the abuser rather than the victim because they just don't believe that it's possible that this person could have abused yeah well in this case they knew because this chap actually chappy you know um you know i'm a bit sounding as um but you know this person this teacher he actually confessed to abusing this friend um this you know this schoolboy friend of this couple's son and that just didn't change the dynamic he apparently according to them he was open about what he'd gone and done but you know the friendship 
seemingly just continued unchanged, you know, and it's very difficult to understand that. But like you say, it, it happens and it's a sort of common scenario. I think sometimes I think children have better antennae than the adults. I think the adults, whatever reason, their antennae become blunted. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things with kids in terms of safeguarding and teaching them about this stuff is, you know, that whole idea of, oh, go give so-and-so a kiss or give so-and-so a cuddle and, you know, not forcing kids to do that in the way that, you know, we might have been forced to do Mm. that when we were children um, and letting them kind of, you know, choose because it's their body and their autonomy, but also from my point of view, it's also trusting their instinct, you know, yeah, of like, that's yeah. not okay with me. I don't want to do that. Um, and I think kids do generally, you know, that whole idea of stranger danger, kids really often do have a sixth sense for that. But equally, I think, you know, we can't emphasize enough the level of manipulation that these predators <laughs> engage in, in order to perpetrate their crimes and how that does impact the whole family, regardless of, you know, how in tune somebody's antenna is child or parent they're just very clever at making people see something other than what they are really yeah quite well it'd be interesting to see where it which direction the supreme court travels in um very shortly with with this question because to date is the law has been on this has been very conservative with a small c if i can put it like that but the problem is it's sort of creating strange I would say anomalies, the logical ones, because why shouldn't a family member who has suffered, you know, real trauma as a result of somebody's negligence not be able to claim simply because there's a a gap, a time gap between the wrong and the the wrong manifesting itself? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just looking at those cases, you know, one, I mean, they all were particularly striking in terms of the facts, but one of them was a a seven-year-old girl who, you know, her parents witnessed her death because she had not been properly diagnosed with a heart condition. And, you know, you can imagine that, you know, it's very just brief description in, in the court of appeal decision of, you know, what happened in terms of her death and not being able to breathe and trying to resuscitate her and things like that, you know, how absolutely horrifically traumatic that would be. Why should it be that they are not allowed to claim for that and be compensated for the psychological injury they've suffered as a result just because it didn't happen immediately at the time when she should have been diagnosed and wasn't? Yeah. It just doesn't follow. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And I think the, you know, this Australian case, RWQ versus the Catholic Archdiocese of Melbourne, which is, you know, revolves around in many ways Archbishop George Powell and everything that um, revolved around him and uh, has been the subject of at least, uh, if I remember rightly, two podcasts in the past, you know, as you know, the court has sort of recognised that, you know, the father is in his own right a victim of child abuse. So he's a sort of classic, I think, secondary victim. So I think that's the direction of travel, but whether the Supreme Court will go in that direction, we shall have to wait and see. Well, there are a host of relationships where this will impact, but but I think the strongest is going to be the child-parent relationship. I think that is by far the strongest way you can see that there is a case made out here. Yeah, yeah and I think I think on the existing law, I think we all have to be alive to the possibility that a parent may have a case if, say, for argument's sake, the child comes 
home, for example, having been sexually assaulted, because that would be the immediate aftermath of the wrong, the crime. And in that um, scenario, uh, I think on existing law, the parent, if they suffer a recognised psychiatric injury as a result of their child coming home and saying, I've been assaulted, you know, in whatever circumstances just now or very shortly beforehand, arguably would have a case if there was a, a case to be brought against the, the wrongdoer or those responsible for the wrongdoer, the abuser. I think too, you know, in terms of, I was just thinking about you saying, Danny, about the parent-child relationship, you can clearly see the, the link, but even I'm thinking about cases, which are most of ours, aren't they, where someone discloses, you know, decades later and then potentially has a breakdown or develops some addictions harmful use of alcohol, the impact on the partner, mm-hmm. you know, you could see that there would be a potential secondary victim claim there. It could. Why not? You know, you could mm-hmm. be devastating for a family, you know, an adult, yeah. you know, you've got the two adults, two partners, and you can see how the disclosure in a relationship could, you know, have traumatic consequences for that relationship and the other partner. We see We've it, had you know. examples. Yeah, yeah we've mm. had examples where we've had a client that's disclosed fully to us and you know you've got to the position where it's coming to a civil trial and and you're trying to keep the the partner out of of the courtroom in the hope that they're not going to hear necessarily all the details because your client is you know the survivor is very very worried that they don't want their partner to have the upset cause to them as well so it's it's a really difficult situation because you've got somebody who's suffered the abuse is going through it all but then also still trying to protect their loved ones from feeling the full force of what they've gone through. Well, on that interesting note, we'll bring this podcast to a close. As always, if you've got any um, questions or thoughts about this podcast or any of that podcast, please do get in touch. So it just remains for me to say it's goodbye from me, it's goodbye from Danny, and it's goodbye from Kathleen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.